Welcome back to another edition of the Musketeer Report podcast. Today is Wednesday, December 22nd. Paul Fritchner, Rick Broing with you. Rick, we had talked about having Trey Scotty on uh, this podcast yesterday, but you were feeling a little under the weather. We decided to push that all back a little bit. Trey will not be on this episode just because we have a lot to talk about with, you know, three games have happened since we recorded last, including the Villanova game. So we're going to push Trey. He's still going to come on. We're still going to take your questions that you all had some really good questions too from the message board. We're still going to get to all that, just not in this episode. Before we get into it, Rick, how are you feeling? I feel much better than I did yesterday. Uh, I know that was a very soft move of me to have to cancel a podcast, but (laughs) I promise I wouldn't have done that if I was physically able to go on. I was not. I'm back 24 hours later. I don't have Brovid-19. I appreciate everyone's concerns and well wishes. Oh, that's good. And so you look at uh, the Musketeers last night on Tuesday night. And uh, Rick, I I think I'll start it this way. And Xavier, the, the fan base was running a little Twitter spaces after the game. You and I actually... We had a, a live show planned for after the game of Xavier had won that we didn't get to uh, utilize. We will be doing that at some point. I know we got we got a lot teasing here to, to start yeah. the show, but but uh, at some point we'll get to that. But after the game, you know, one of the points that I made, and, and I think this is kind of the way I want to start this is it feels like this was a game where everything was going right for Xavier in the first half, where you had Dewan Odom lobbing in a ball into the post that went in for a made three. That was Xavier's already their fifth made three of the game before there were even 10 minutes gone in the game. Xavier starts six for six from the three-point line, but they don't make another three the rest of the game. Xavier goes into the halftime break up 38 to 30, uh, and it just felt like everything was going Xavier's way. There was a a home run pass from underneath Villano's own basket. They're inbounding under their own basket. They throw it into the backcourt trying to get the ball in to avoid a five-second count. They throw it all the way to the other end of the court. Kunkel saves it in bounds on a turnover, throws it right to Nate Johnson, who lays it in. And it just felt like all those little breaks were going Xavier's way. When you go to the pavilion, it's always Villanova that makes all the threes. It was Xavier that was making all the threes in the first half. And it just felt like the trends that we saw coming into the game and what people were talking about with how Xavier – maybe was going to catch Villanova on a little bit of an off night, whatever it may be. It felt like maybe this was going to be the time. Xavier, of course, never won at Villanova. But in the second half, you start out with four turnovers in the first two minutes of the second half. Villanova starts to make some threes. Xavier doesn't make any threes. Things go downhill. And all of a sudden, you find yourself losing by 13, which in a game where you were winning by eight, It's a 21-point swing, and it ends up being Xavier's worst loss under Travis Steele at Villanova, whereas they had lost by 6-10 and before. So this really shifted on its head. Xavier had a big chance to win. They were down by two in the final war going into those final like four minutes of the game. So, Rick, I, I know that there's a lot to get to with this Villanova game, but if they can't do it tonight with the way the game started and the talent they had and the way that the game was just playing out the feel of the game. When are they going to be able to get over the hump in Philadelphia? That's a good question. I don't know that they will. And and for the record, no one really does like that's not named Butler. That's the one thing that people keep overlooking when they talk about Xavier struggling at Villanova. No one really wins at Villanova very often in this conference and, and really There's not a ton of road wins in this conference to begin with. You're usually trying to hold serve at home and steal a few games on the road throughout the season. So a road loss, not a big deal. A road loss to Villanova, certainly understandable and explainable. At the same time, 
everything was going right for Xavier in the first half. Not just that, though. They looked like the better team. And we've seen Villanova have some struggles recently going back to the the Creighton game, I think is the most glaring because their other losses were against really good teams. But I don't understand how you get to a point as Xavier where you only score 20 points in the second half. That's the one thing that blows my mind. Like, I understand Villanova is going to start throwing in some shots. They're playing in the pavilion. That was always bound to happen. But Xavier really just had to play average in the second half. They just had to be okay to win this game. And they were as bad as you could possibly be. You go 0 for 14 from three in the second half. You have seven turnovers in the first seven minutes of action in the second half. You get soft on defense at the end of the game because your shots aren't going in, I think, on offense and you're turning the ball over. It seemed like they let that affect their play and their energy and their toughness on defense. And, you know, credit to Villanova. I, I, I asked for this on Twitter because I see all these people talking about how Jay Wright coached circles around Travis and how he made all these adjustments and everything. I, I asked for anyone to give me the adjustments that Villanova made. Didn't, didn't actually hear any of them. No one was actually able to point any out. I will give you one that I think they did do a good job of, though. And that was they really spread the floor with their shooters. They put three shooters on the perimeter, and then they just attack Xavier's bigs in ball screen situations. Whether it was Fremantle out there or Nunji out there or Fremantle and Nunji at the same time, they really went after them. And then in addition to that, they got their guard, the ball to their big, strong guards, Moore, uh, Daniels even Gillespie to a certain extent, and they got to the rim and kind of overpowered. Even Colby Jones at one point got bodied on the block by, I think it was Moore, maybe it was Daniel, one one of the two. And it was just like, that was kind of uncharacteristic for Colby. And when he's not getting stops one-on-one, who is going to get stops for the Savior team? So I think the defense was the most disheartening part because they fell apart and just, they didn't have that toughness and they didn't play hard like they've been doing all season. That's one thing about this team is they've played really hard. They played really hard in the first half. That play you talked about with the baseball pass in the backcourt where Kunkel chased it down was a phenomenal hustle play that a lot of players would have just taken for granted and and let the team go chase it down themselves. They didn't have that in the final 10 minutes of this game. And I, I think that was the toughest part to swallow, but the rest of it, I mean, I don't know how you explain it. How do you explain the two teams combined to go one for 24 from three-point range on that end of the court? Like, sometimes there are just weird things that happen. I don't know how exactly you explain it. At the same time, there are certainly uh, some questions for Xavier that we can get into as well. When you look at how this game played out, Rick, and you, I, I think it, it was interesting, right? there. And I, I said this on the message board. There are a lot of other things that played into this. But for the teams to combine... One for 24 from three on that right side of the court. I I know there's, look, it's not as simple as just like there was a physical lid on that basket, but that's a pretty wild stat for both of these teams. Well, in fact, that both of them shot really well at the other end of the floor. Like, yeah, how does that flip so significantly? I don't know if I've ever seen that in a game before. I mean, we've seen teams go cold in a half, but you don't usually see both teams shoot at the same basket and just can't make a single shot. I mean, Villanova went one for 10 in the first half, but almost couldn't make a single shot. Yeah, a combined one for 24, and a lot of those shots for Villanova in the first half of those 10, probably six or seven of them were, I don't want to say uncontested, but, but, but they were good open looks. shots, yeah. really good looks, and they just weren't going in. Yeah, the, the, the type of shots that you expect Villanova to make against Xavier at the Pavilion, that's for certain. So, I mean, when you're getting through those you know, first 10 minutes, they're not making those shots, Xavier is, you're thinking, man, what a dream game for the Musketeers. It, it looks great, but... Obviously, it all fell apart. I think let's get into some of the 
biggest issues or questions you have coming out of this game. And I think the one thing that I'm most interested to see going forward is what Travis does with the front court, because you have an interesting puzzle to put together here now where he's talked about it a lot in post-game press conferences that he's got to play Zach Fremantle and Jack Nungy together in his opinion. He's got to get them both on the court because it gives you more firepower offensively and they're two of your better players. At the same time, Zach Car- Zach can't guard a soul right now. I mean, he can't stop anybody, and it's a major problem for their defense. In addition to that, Jack isn't a guy who can really create his own offense. You've got to be able to feed the ball to him. And Villanova kind of gave teams the blueprint for how best to take him away in this game by fronting him and bringing a help defender underneath. A lot of times it was Dwan Odom's defender when he was in the game because they weren't worried about him shooting the three. Sometimes I believe it was Colby Jones or Jerome Hunter's defender that they would bring underneath. But either way, they would bring a help defender underneath to try to steal that lob pass. They did it all game. That wasn't an adjustment. That was how they defended the entire game. Xavier got a couple passes in. They got a couple of those lobs. They also forced a couple and got it taken away. At the same time, I heard people complaining at halftime that Villanova was beating them up in the post and outscoring them points in the paint. So it's like everyone at halftime was saying Xavier needs to get the ball inside more. They're getting dominated in the paint. And then they turn the ball over, trying to get it inside more. And everyone's like, why are you throwing the ball inside? So I'm not saying Travis Steele should be listening to Twitter fans or anything about the adjustments he's going to make at halftime. I really don't think he was trying to make an adjustment there. I think the the guys were trying to get the ball to one of their best players on Jack Nungy and Villanova had a pretty good plan for how to take them away. Now, I will say Xavier did a good job adjusting to that in the second half. What they did out of one of the timeouts is they brought Dwan up to the top of the key. And when the pass wasn't there, they, to, to Nunji because Dwan's help defender was coming underneath. They immediately rotated it to get it back to Dwan. Dwan had a big driving lane into the middle of the paint. He wasn't able to finish the shot, but it was a great look for him and a great counter to that. And something else they would do too is they would start Nate Johnson down on that block opposite Nunji and bring him up to the top of the key as they were looking to feed Nunji. So the closest defender was guarding Nate Johnson and needed to stick on Nate Johnson. So he wasn't able to stay in a help position. So Steele and Xavier did actually adjust to what Villanova was doing. I thought they did a pretty good job of it in terms of that Nunji situation. But again, there's only so much Nunji can do as an offensive player in that situation. He's not a guy that's going to go create his own look. And then finally, you have Jerome Hunter, who is better than those two guys defensively, I'd say, especially Zach when he's guarding the four. At times, he can give you something as a rebounder, but he's not a great rebounder. Offensively, he makes a lot of mistakes and he takes them out of their flow at times. So how do you process all of that? And how do you find the best lineup? And when do you need to play Colby Jones more at the four and go with a smaller lineup? I don't know if there's a correct answer to that right now. And I don't know that it's going to be the same answer on every night. You might have to adjust game to game and make it a little more matchup dependent. And also I see people saying things like Zach Fremantle needs to play less and they need to bench him and things like that. I I think that would be a net loss for this team overall in the season. If, if they just decide Zach Fremantle can't play anymore and they're not going to use him as much. Like this is a guy that was preseason first team, all big East. He has some talent. He can certainly help them on the offensive end. I think they have to find a way to get him going. He's clearly not himself on offense right now, and he's never been a great defender. But you can't just let him wither on the vine and be like, eh, we're done with him for the rest of the year. You've got to find a way to get him up to speed on offense while also making sure he's not costing you too many games in league play. When you look back at a guy like J.P. Makura, who 
had his issues sometimes on defense. He, you were able to kind of shade him with the one, three, one up at the top. And I don't want to say you hit him, but that was in effect kind of what you were doing. You were allowing him to be able to stay on the floor and utilize defensively what he was able to do best use his length at the top of that one, three, one zone. What do you do then Rick with Zach down underneath the basket to try and alleviate some of that stress where every single time you come down the court and Zach is there defensively, it, you know, it's just, I don't want to say it's an automatic basket, but it is a liability defensively right now. Yeah. It's a major problem. And I, someone asked me on the message board last week, what do you do to better help Zach? So he's not just giving up a bucket in the post every time. And I said, well, it starts with Zach. He has to make guys catch the ball farther off the block. And if he does that, if he makes them catch it two, three feet off the block, then his guards can help and dig down a little bit more and maybe make that that big man pass the ball back out, which is exactly what Jermaine Samuels was looking to do tonight. They were looking to get it to Jermaine Samuels, low on the block, have a help defender come, and have him kick it out to a three-point shooter. They did that to Zach a couple of times, and Zach was letting him catch inside the paint. I mean, way too deep. So that's on Zach. He's got to do a better job of that. A zone will help hide Zach to a certain extent. I think they're going to continue to try to use that when they can. But I also think overall, this isn't a zone team. I actually agree with Travis about that. I don't think long-term they're a zone team. And I, you have some other really good defenders that'll be fine in man-to-man. So again, it's a, it's a puzzle that you've got to put together. And I think a zone is part of that. But there's there's more pieces than just putting in the zone and now it all falls into place. Yeah. I, and then in the second half of this game, the way it all went down with the way it just totally turned on its head, Xavier started missing shots, but even still, they had the lead or were within a bucket of the lead going right down to the wire. Villanova comes out with a 6-0 run or at one point in the game. Xavier answers with a 6-0 run of their own. That was a little earlier on in the game, might have even been in the first half. But it felt like even when the momentum started to swing in Villanova's favor in the second half, Xavier was able to maybe hit a free throw here or, or get a, a bucket here and there. And, and they kind of staved off that massive Villanova run to where with four minutes left in the game, you're within one basket, you're down two, and you have some pretty good looks in those last four minutes, really in the last five to seven minutes of the game where the shots just weren't going in, but you get some Nate Johnson threes that are open and that he hits way more often than he doesn't. And they just didn't go in. And the way you look at Saturday where Xavier going into that last four minute war, they go on a 10 to run to end the game and seal it away against Villan or against Marquette. Now against Villanova, it's the complete opposite. And you end up losing by 11 after being down two, and, and that's just how it goes. So, when you look at how those last five to seven minutes played out, Rick, and I know we have some more individuals to talk about, but I think that this is something a lot of people are, are really keying in on right now is, is that end of the game. I, I think there was more there as far as open looks that Xavier really had chances. The shots just didn't go in. Yeah, I was telling you before we went on here that I was going back through the possessions on synergy watching the final seven minutes. Cause that's where it really kind of got away from Xavier. There was that 12 to three run by Villanova to open the second half that cut away the eight point deficit. And then they regained the lead. And then for the next, you know, six, seven minutes, it was 
back and forth, them trading the lead essentially. And like you said, Xavier, not completely giving in to a giant wave from Villanova. But then in the final 728 is what it was. It was after a Jack Nungy and one. Xavier gets outscored 22 to seven. During that stretch, they go three for 12 from the field, including 0 for seven from beyond the arc. And the only people who made field goals were Dwan Odom, Jerome Hunter, and Adam Kunkel. Now, if you remember before the season, there was a lot of talk about, does this team have a go-to player? Do they have a closer? Do they have someone to go to when the game's on the line and the walls look like they're caving in and things aren't going right? Do they have that guy that you can just throw the ball to and say, go get us one, make us a play, get us back on the right track? Here we are, right? I mean, you look at that second half from these Xavier guys, the top guys, the Fremantles, the Scruggs, even the Colby Jones who has stepped up this year and is looking like a future star. Jack Nungy, we've already talked about some of his limitations, but he's been a... Those guys weren't there in the end of the game. I, yeah, you know, I mean, I think that is a legitimate problem for this team. They're they're a, a group of good players, and they've got pretty good overall depth of good players, but they still don't seem to have that guy that can go take over the game at the end. And we've, you know, already this year we've seen stuff posted about all the different leading scores they've had. Well, that's great to a certain extent. Until you're in a situation like this and you don't know who the guy is. And yeah. I, I'm not saying it's the end of the world. I think you can still win like that. I've seen other teams win that way, but it's a challenge to overcome. And it leads to some end of game situations like this one. What did you think, Rick, of the shot selection and how those last five or six minutes played out? Oh, yeah, that's I, I started that story off by trying to get to that. We had talked before we had started recording this podcast about those final seven minutes. And I even got down to like, the final two or three minutes of action thinking, oh yeah, Xavier just got dominated. Like they had no chance by the two minute mark. But I mean, there were uh, with about 90 seconds left. Nate Johnson had a wide open three on the left wing that would have cut it to four and kept Xavier very much in the game. He just missed it. There was another three he had where Dwan drove into the middle of the lane threw a jump past him in the corner, very much like the three pointer that he put Marquette away with in the second half. And he just rimmed it out. Everyone was talking about their shot selection. They were forcing stuff. I didn't see that. Most of their three pointers look to be decent looks. You know, Nate Johnson missed another pretty good look off a design underneath out of bounds play that he's scored off of multiple times this year. So, you know, in terms of the, they were forcing stuff and they weren't running good offense. I'm not sure if I really buy that. I, I, I didn't see that at all. It looked like the same team. Now, one thing I did see, especially early in the second half is in the first half, they were playing fast and it was working well for them. They're getting the ball up the court. They sprayed it to Nate Johnson for a three. They sprayed it to Adam Kunkel for a three. There was a play where Colby drove the lane and, and got some, I think he got fouled and got to the free throw line and scored. Playing up tempo and trying to speed Nova up a little bit worked in the first half. In the second half, Paul Scruggs and Colby Jones, for some reason, were throwing the ball all over the place to start. And that kind of threw them out of whack. Uh, they seemed to slow down a little bit after that and not try to play as fast. And I think that didn't help them as much either because that was good for them in the first half that worked, but it was a weird second half all the way around. But as far as the, like not running offense and not getting good look stuff, I just, I didn't see that. One individual performance. I think we should, we should definitely talk about here is Dewan Odom. And I thought his mid range pull-up game was something that we haven't seen a ton of really uh, this year or in his career, we he was seen spurts, but not with the at least consistency in one game that we saw it tonight where he was getting to one spot by the elbow, pulling up, and it was nearly automatic. 
his shot form looked good uh, for as much as he's worked on it. His shot form looked good. It wasn't a, you know, kick out for three and he's pulling up and it looks like his right leg is going one way and his left leg's going the other way. It was a nice, silky smooth pull up jumper. And he hit a couple of timely ones when Villanova was going on runs that it, it was, it was a nice looking shot out of him that Xavier really needed. And that's a, a part of his game now in the last two games where he's really stepped up and, like you look at tonight, you talk about a go-to guy. I don't know if Dewan Odom is the go-to type of killer mentality guy that, that we're talking about, but he is somebody now that if you add that element to his game coming off his career high on Mar- against Marquette on Saturday, I thought he had a really nice game tonight. He was great tonight. He was really good against Marquette. It, to your point about his mid-range game, his footwork has always been much better when he's shooting off the dribble and in the mid-range as opposed to those spot-up threes that you referenced. And we're seeing that come to fruition. He's really getting more comfortable with where his spots are on the court. And it's getting to the middle of the lane, front of the rim, shooting that floater and getting to the free throw line or free throw line extended area for the pull-up mid-range jumper. And with teams giving him the amount of cushion they are and playing off of him, daring him to shoot, that's really making it easier on him to get to those spots and pull up with a little bit of space and, and get those shots off as long as he can keep hitting them. And that's always been his strength. I mean, even going back to the high school days, he was never a three point shooter. He was always a monster in transition, a great playmaker and a guy who could really score in the mid range. And it's a part of the game that not a lot of teams try to focus on or try to utilize very often, but with Dwan Odom, you're going to have to because that's where his value is as a scorer. And to your point about having a takeover guy, that's clearly not Dwan yet. And it's always probably going to be a little tough for him to be that type of player without being able to shoot the three, but he's getting closer. And when you're looking towards like next year and who's going to be that guy for this team going forward, I think you're probably looking at a guy like him or a guy like Colby Jones to help step into that role somewhat. And that's two straight games now for Dewan where he's been the team's leading scorer. So if you want to look at how that's going to all played out for him, you know, he's the Ken Palm MVP against Marquette, scores 19 points, and it comes out and leads the team again tonight against Villanova. And that's definitely something, especially getting into this stretch of Big East play here where you have UConn next week, who now is one and one in the Big East. We can talk more about that in a minute, but I mean, I think there are really positive signs out of Dewan and the confidence that he's built because Marquette, a good team, you know, Owen two now in the big East, but that, you know, they're, they're a good team and Villanova, a really good team for him to have these games against. My point is I'm not saying Marquette is, is fantastic. That's not my point. They're not great. My point is that he's not scoring 19 against DePaul or, or Georgetown or yeah, or, or ball state. He's going out there and doing it against quality big East competition. Well, yeah. And he, he's not getting it the way Dwan would dominate a mid-major potentially is just getting runouts in transition, getting steals, all that type of stuff where they just can't physically keep up with them when he's doing against big East competition. You know, it's legitimate, you know, it's something yeah. that can last and he can, and he can do again, uh, regardless of whether it's Marquette or DePaul or St. John's or, Providence or whoever, it doesn't have to be the top two or three teams in the conference. Anyone at the Big East level is good enough to give him a challenge and make it tough on him. He's turning a corner. He's clearly getting better. The confidence is is just growing with each game for him. If you're looking for a positive sign from this game, you've got Dwan Odom at the tippy top and not a ton else. I mean, I, I think I would feel some confidence as a Xavier fan about the way it went in the first half. 
you were clearly the better team. You looked like you could match up with these guys. You get them on a neutral site or on your floor. I think you feel pretty good about a rematch. So those were kind of the two main positive takeaways. If you want to throw another one in there, maybe the fact that Nate Johnson continues to be consistent by giving you three three three-pointers a game. I mean, if they didn't have Nate Johnson on this team, I don't know where they'd be. Because three-point shooting on this team has just been completely inconsistent aside from him. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And and you look at now where Xavier's going to go out of this game. You have UConn next, but then you have just two more games until Xavier plays Villanova again. Usually it feels like Xavier plays at Villanova right around now, right around Christmas, New Year's, right around to open the Big East season. But they don't usually play Villanova at Cintas again until maybe mid to late February. It's right around the end of the season, kind of bookends the season. There's only a two-game turnaround here or a three-game turnaround for Xavier uh, before the, Villanova comes right back to Cintas in about three weeks. You have UConn. You have a week off now, and you have UConn. And then after UConn in the new year, you go to Georgetown and to Butler, and there's only one game at Cintas now until Villanova comes back. So it's not a whole lot of time where sometimes you know Xavier might get blown out in December things might round into form and then you see Xavier win at, at Cintas. That's happened twice. You only have three games and one of them is against UConn next week before two road games. It's a quick turnaround. Yeah. And I think that UConn game at home is a huge one for this team coming off the Villanova loss and, and the way they crumbled. It's like, okay, show you are the team that you've looked like most of the year. Show you are that same team that beat Marquette at home. If you come out with a win at home against UConn, I think everyone can breathe a pretty big sigh of relief and say, okay, this team is who we thought they were. They slipped up at Villanova, which anyone can do. It really doesn't matter how you lose that game. It's still a loss, but this isn't college football. One game does not make your season win or lose. It doesn't really change that much. Now, a quad one win on the road is huge. Don't get me wrong, but fortunately, they've already racked up a quad one win on the road, a quad one win at a neutral site. They've got a pretty good resume already in place. That's what people also lose sight of. They, right now, basically just have to go 500 in Big East play. Hold serve at home, and with what they did in the non-conference, they're in the tournament. Now, granted, you're looking at this team, you want bigger things for them. You want them to achieve a better seed than just getting into the tournament as an 8, 9, or 10 seed. But I don't know that they really ever had the upside to be a top four seed. I think they were always somewhere between like four and nine. And, you know, some things have gone against them, like Fremantle sitting out for several months to start the season and during the preseason. And for the most part, I I think ultimately they win that UConn game and you feel like everything's on track. Everything's all right with this team. They're going to be just fine. I'm not saying that Xavier is going to go, what would it be? 16 and or 18 and two in the, in the, conference schedule or 18 and 17 and three, I guess two more losses the rest of the way. That's what Ken Palm has them at right now projected wise. And I know I reference Ken Palm a lot. It's just when I do these podcasts here, it's what I keep up looking at the schedule at Seton hall and at Connecticut are their only two projected losses the rest of the way. I'm not sitting here and saying that Xavier's going to finish at 17 and three in the big East, because doing that probably means that you're winning the conference, which I do think Xavier has a very good chance at when you, the other thing too, I think with winning the, I've seen a lot of people talking about Xavier winning the Big East this year, and I, I think there's a, some validity to that. When you look at one, you know, look, Seton Hall has already forfeited a game. If they keep that forfeit rule in place, 
and the way that Xavier, you know, with all their vaccinations and the way that, you know, Adam Baum was reporting that the other day about Xavier being fully vaccinated and, and the way they're testing and everything like that. COVID wise, Xavier has things in their favor as far as, as forfeits or things like that would go. So you look at the rest of the way, say, say Xavier loses three more games. You lose at UConn, you lose uh, at Seton Hall, maybe, and then you throw in one or two others. Then you're probably talking about a, a four or five seed in that point, if not better. Yeah, certainly. I mean, if you run the table like that, you've definitely got a chance to be up there in those seed lines. Yeah. Now, do I think that's going to happen? Probably not. I, I will say for the people who are big Ken Palm fans here, they're, because they'll call us out on this, you're going by the game-by-game thing. They only have them yeah. set to lose two more games on a game-by-game basis. But if you well, look you at look Ken at Palm's them, projections, yeah. they've got them at 13-7 and seven in Big East play, 23-8 overall, which, by the way, would be really good. If they do that, yeah. they're in great shape. And I don't know what seed that puts them at, but I mean – it's probably better than a seven seed, I would guess. Probably like five-ish, five, six-ish. Yeah. So, so yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's where this team's upside probably is. Now, th- there's part of me that does worry about them having a go-to guy and them getting Zach Fremantle on track quickly enough and them shooting the three well enough to go 13-7 and seven the rest of the way. I think they might be a little closer to 500 in conference play, but – it's not unreasonable either. I think that is what their upside is, is capable of. Yeah. And I think it's avoiding that loss maybe at Butler or at like a Georgetown, one of those types of losses where you clean up those games, you can win those games easily. And then you pick up one, you pick up a win at UConn or you pick up a win at Seton hall. And then you're starting to really kick things into motion, especially with those games being toward the end of the year. We can talk a lot more about that as the season goes on, but just kind of wanted to put things in perspective with the way Xavier started right now. Xavier, Villanova, Connecticut, all at one and one in the Big East. And those are the three teams, Seton Hall, those four teams, really the the top, and they're all right there here a couple of games in. Rick, was there anything from from Marquette on Saturday? We talked three games now since since we've recorded. We talked a lot about Villanova. We don't have to get into the nitty-gritty of – Saturday's game against Marquette, but the way that Xavier closed that game out, they closed it real strong. Marquette had a shot to take the lead with just under three minutes left, uh, missed the shot, and then Xavier closed out the game on a 10-2 run. Uh, Were there any general takeaways, big things, some positives that you saw out of that game uh, at Cintas on Saturday? Well, like you just said, the way they closed it was certainly a positive, and I just go back to Dwan Odom. I mean, he really stood out. He played fantastic basketball. And when you talk about the way they closed it, I just can't stop thinking about his jump pass to Nate Johnson that kind of put the game on ice. That was a spectacular play by him. He he drives into a crowd in the lane and all of a sudden he just emerges, elevates over everybody to fire out a perfect pass to Nate Johnson in the corner, which I don't even know how he knew he was there. And it put the game on ice. That, That was essentially what ended it right there. So yeah, I don't know that I have a ton to get into from that game, but I do have a question for you, which is everyone's talking about the lineups right now, and I don't care. I know people get mad about this. I don't really care who starts the game. They can do whatever they want with that. But we got into the final minutes of the game, that last war, and I was curious about the lineup that they had out there 
in that final war, which I think it was Fremantle at the five, Hunter at the four, and then whatever guards they had with them. But anyway, there was a lot of Fremantle. It was a lot of Hunter, I believe. I'm curious why there was no smaller lineup with Colby Jones at the four at all in that final stretch and and why we're not seeing a little bit more of that. I know a lot of people also want to see Dwan Odom play more at the one. I don't necessarily think that means Paul Scruggs comes out of the game all the time. I think there's a, a world where those two play together a lot more. What are your overall thoughts on the best lineup right now and what you'd like to see in winning time? Well, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about with tonight's game too, where it feels like to me, if you'd rather have Colby Jones or Jerome Hunter on the floor, what you may get defensively out of Jerome, to me, it just seems like you got to have Colby on the floor and he gives you the best opportunity to win a game because there are times when Jerome has the ball where you you just don't know what's going to happen and you're just kind of hoping that things go right and things don't go wrong. And with Colby, sure, tonight against Villanova, there were, you know, that one turnover that he just chucked the ball down the court, some kind of head scratcher plays. But man, to me, if you have Dewan, you have Paul, you have Nate, you have Colby, and you have Jack Nunji on the court when you need to win a basketball game. And you have those five guys on the court. If you need a little shooting, maybe you throw Paul at the one and then you take Dewan out and you put Adam Kunkel in there. But if you need to win a basketball game and you need ball handling, you need some size down low, you look, you need the rebounding from Colby and Jack, you need a, a little bit of a perimeter threat from the, you know, the guys like Paul and Nate. I don't know where that lineup really at the end of the game could see I, that's those are my five guys when you got to win a basketball game if you're Xavier. Yeah, I assume the idea there was Colby wasn't having a very good game, but Colby not playing the final 441, which is what I'm looking at right now on the play by play in a stat broadcast. Colby didn't play the final four minutes and 41 seconds of this game. Even if he's playing poorly, I think I find, I find a way to keep him out there. I, if nothing else, just defensively. He's a much better option than the the guys we're talking about here, regardless of whether it's at the three or the four. I'll put it this way. I think there are more things that can go right with Colby on the floor over Jerome than the other way around. I think that's the simplest way to put it. That's a really good way to say it. And, And Jerome has had his issues. Look, he had a big bucket. I don't know when it was, but sometime in the middle of the second half when Xavier was going through a drought, he had a big bucket where he drove the lane and finished. But, you know, there's also the play where, he gets a steal going in the backcourt. And instead of like throwing up a lob to Dwan, he tries a weird bounce pass and Dwan has to bounce it back to him. And then he gets fouled and misses the layup by three feet. And there's another opportunity where I don't know if it was Paul or Dwan finds him on a bounce pass in the lane and he misses another layup by two or three feet. I mean, he's just not playing very well offensively at all. And even if he's marginally better than these other guys defensively, he still has plenty of lapses on that side. So I don't know. I'm I'm not trying to crush anybody here individually too much, but I just look at those lineups and I think they're going to have to figure that out to a certain extent. And I don't know tonight. I don't know what the answer would have been because no one was playing very well down the stretch there, but I just know that the lineup they had at the end was terrible defensively and didn't seem to be giving them a whole lot offensively either. So 
How do you fix that? I don't know. To get back to who I think would be my favorite lineup in those moments, I'm going Dwan Odom at the one, Paul Scruggs at the two, Nate Johnson at the three, Colby Jones at the four, and Jack Nungy at the five. I think that's their best lineup right now. And there are certainly matchups that will dictate that you play differently. There are certainly games where one of those guys aren't going to be playing well and someone else is. So you give them more minutes. But I think that the biggest challenge for this staff ahead is tightening the rotation a little bit, finding who their seven guys are that they can rely on the most, and then figuring out how to work those other guys in enough that they're still valuable, but you're not giving them too many minutes. And defensively, if you want to say that you need Zach Fremantle on the court instead of Colby or something for a little bit more of a post presence, whatever it may be, defensively, right now, it's tough to put him on the court. Well, that's the thing. It's like, I would take Colby Jones guarding a center over Zach Fremantle guarding a center right now, even though he's given up that height and length. Zach offers zero resistance at this point defensively. That just is what it is. I don't think it's unfair to call him out in that man. He cannot stop anybody. I don't know. You're what, 6'3"? You're a little light, but I think you could give him buckets in the post right now if it really (laughs) came down to it, especially if we throw a Villanova jersey on you. So I'm going to get some texts about that one. He's got to get better defensively, but at the same time, that's clearly not happening anytime soon. So you're going to have to figure out how to work around it without losing a bunch of games this season. And again, I don't think this is like some indictment on their team and everything is on fire now and it's all a huge issue. But if you're looking for how this team goes from slightly better than maybe 500 in Big East play and just making the tournament to being a four or five seed, like we talked about, these are the things you have to figure out. Yeah, exactly. Rick, anything else from tonight or anything else from Marquette, Moorhead State? Yeah, I've got some great Moorhead State takes that we didn't get to, but maybe on another show. (laughs) We'll push that to after Christmas. Yeah, Yeah, we'll we'll do that on the Trey Scotty episode. (laughs) Anything, uh, any other big picture notes, any Anything to clean up recruiting? I know you posted the, some nuggets uh, last night or the night before. And anything like that that, that Xavier fans should know? Yeah, like you said, they just posted the nuggets. The Desmond Claude situation seems like it's kind of trending in another direction. Louisville just had him on a visit this past week. They would seem to be the front runner right now, but Kansas also just offered and they've been showing interest. And I think they'll be a serious player if they decide they really want him. At the same time, you never know what a Kansas offer means because Bill Self is notorious for for offering a kid to like keep him from committing to someone else because he thinks it's about to happen and then never talking to the kid again, like just completely ghosting him. So it doesn't necessarily mean that's like who Kansas wants. And that's the interesting thing right now is all three of the major guard targets that Xavier is recruiting in the 22 class. I don't know if you can still throw Desmond Claude in that group or not right now, but all three of those main guys that we've talked about within the last month, Kansas is a factor for all of them. And no one seems to know exactly who they're, they want the most and who they're going to prioritize. So that's a big piece of the puzzle right now that's got implications on not just Xavier, but a few of these other schools that are really recruiting, including Louisville and Chris Mack, because he seems to be offering every guard that Xavier's recruiting <laughs> uh, right now. So that's that's fun for the fans. So yeah, go to uh, musketeerreport.com on the message board. The latest Nuggets post has all the information on those guys, and uh, we'll have more as it develops. One last thing here before we sign off. Your sweatshirt looks clean. What's the laundry update? It's been a little bit. What's the is there is there finality to this? Let's put a bow on all of this, Rick. I'm glad you allowed me this opportunity. 
I want to give a shout out to General Electric Appliances. They were a little slow to acknowledge the severity of the situation, as I have noted multiple times, including on this podcast, but they did come through. They sent us a brand new washer, even upgraded it because the one that was most similar to ours was on back order. They, it was like eight days it took, and that's including a weekend. And they shipped the old one out. They put the new one in. It's all good. My clothes are clean, except for these uh, pit stains I've got going right now from uh, that intense game. But yeah, that's about that's it. So shout out to General Appliances and their customer service. They they did right. The problem is, had I not blown them up on social media and did what we did on this podcast, not sure they ever would have responded to it. They probably would have just told me to kick rocks and buy a new washer. Uh, but I'm, gl- I'm glad they did the right thing. Well, that's good, Rick. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. You can wash your clothes. Yeah. Uh, so again, I apologize for the softness on Monday when I wasn't able to record the podcast. Hopefully this makes up for it a little bit, us recording one here at 1 a.m. on on Wednesday morning. And uh, I appreciate all the well wishes. And to all you subscribers, got a lot of new people that have joined the site within the last few months, a lot of people that have been with us for a long time. Thank you for your continued support. And I hope you all have a Merry Christmas. Yeah. Merry Christmas to everybody. Uh, word on the street is that Spotify, you can leave a rating and a review now. So if you, I, we saw on the message board the other day that a lot of people listen on Spotify. So Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever, leave, leave a five-star rating and a review. How about that? Shout out to my guy who was like, Rick, it'd be nice if you'd get your other podcast on Spotify. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> like, I think someone asked me to do this like three years ago and I did it. I, I had to scramble to look for it to make sure it was actually there, but it was. So yeah, they're all available. Skinny Podcast, Musketeer Report co- Podcast, Jane and Victory is still available out there if you want to go back and listen to old episodes because you missed Dan's cat. You can find it all. <laughs> yeah, so that has been tonight's episode. Rick and I, I think we'll, we'll probably try and get Trey on for next week because there's no game before UConn. So that'd probably be a, a real good spot there to get Trey on. Yeah, Assuming um, he's available with Christmas and every the holidays going yeah. on. I mean, he's, you know, he's traveling now with him being in Georgia and away from his family. So we'll have to uh, make sure it works with his schedule, but I'd love to have him on as soon as possible. Yeah. And and there were, like I said, in the beginning, some good questions for the message board. So we'll get to all that and more. And uh, yeah, we'll have to postpone the live show again till uh, till some other time, but it'll be good. We we got it all set up for whenever uh, we can do that after a game or some other time. Maybe we, maybe we all just want to hang out. Yeah, well, we, we might start doing the podcast in some type of live fashion occasionally, even because uh, the one cool thing is you can take questions in live while you're doing the show, pop them up on the screen. You can get it in video format. We can post it to uh, YouTube or Vimeo later or whatever. So we'll, we'll look into doing some cool things here as we continue. Cool. Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. We'll talk to you all uh, next week.